Ever wondered how to secure your e-commerce business against data breaches and theft? Or maybe you're curious about compliance standards like PCI DSS or SOC 2. You've tuned in to the right podcast. This is Talk Commerce. I'm Veronica Costello, your co-host, joined by the equally charismatic and admittedly single joke reliant Brent Peterson. Together, we navigate the engrossing world of e-commerce and yes, indulge in Brent's free joke project. Now, imagine getting insights straight from the expert himself. Our guest today, Justin Beals, the co-founder of StrikeGraph, will help us delve deeper into the intricacies of security operations, privacy standards, and much more. Buckle up, because this is the kind of deep-dive discussion you don't want to miss. Prepare yourself for another one of Brent's unforgettable punchlines, and remember, you're here to secure your business future in the digital marketplace. It's time to talk commerce, but first, a word from our sponsors. Great news for the Magenta community. Hufa is now fully supported by Amnesty, the number one Magento extension provider. With a catalog of over 250 Magento products and solutions and a full range of custom development services, Amnesty actively invests in providing compatibility with the Hufa theme. 33 solution compatibilities have already been released and are available as part of the regular product subscription with no extra charge. And many more new compatibilities are coming. In partnership with Hufa, Amnesty is focused on providing its clients with high quality extensions, great performance, and a high level of service. Visit amnesty.com for more details. That's A-M-A-S-T-Y dot com. And remember to tell them Talk Commerce sent you. Is your Magento site moving at a snail's pace? Believe it or not, you're in the same boat as 90% of Magento store owners. Let's add a splash of optimism. I recently had a client who revived their site by switching to Hufa. Their excitement was contagious. Hufa is more than just a theme. It's like having a secret weapon in your e-commerce arsenal. Picture this, you're crafting an online space that's as vibrant, engaging, and dynamic as your brand. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? That's the Hufa magic. Performance, top-notch, usability, smooth as butter. With Hufa, hitting Google Lighthouse scores of 100 isn't a dream, it's reality. My client and I have been on this exhilarating journey, and I tell you, it's a game changer. But hey, Hufa isn't just about turbocharging your performance. It's about putting a personal stamp on your store. The theme is fully customizable. Play around, express yourself, make it truly yours. My client has been having a blast watching their online storefront transform supercharged by Hufa's powerful features and tools. Ready for transformation? Why not test drive Hufa and feel the difference yourself? Visit hyva.io. That's hyva.io. And when you get there, don't forget to mention that Talk Commerce sent you. Trust me, you're in for a treat. My name is Brent Peterson and I'm your host. Please remember to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And now, Talk Commerce. Welcome to this episode of Talk Commerce. Today I have Justin Beals. Justin is the 
co-founder and CEO of StrikeGraph. Justin, go ahead, do an introduction for yourself. Tell us your day-to-day role and maybe one of your passions in life. Sure, Brent. Uh, I'm Justin Beals. I'm the CEO and co-founder at StrikeGraph. Um, certainly as the uh, founder at StrikeGraph, uh, a lot of my role has been building the business, getting the right team together, making sure we're solving a really important problem and we have a valuable solution to provide. Um, I think as the CEO, a couple things that I like to say is that it's certainly the adage of having to work with a lot of different teams and you know deal with a lot of broad issues, everything from trash collection to hiring to strategy is true. And then also you tend to get the problems that um, are really hard <laughs> that, that people need help with. <laughs> um, passion, uh, I'm certainly passionate about the work I do every day, but outside of work, Um, I'm an avid sailor and skateboarder, uh, both hobbies that I really love. We do a little sailboat racing uh, here in the greater Seattle area. It's a lot of fun, and um, I'm always looking to get a turn in on my skateboard when I can. That's awesome. My friend uh, is the president of the Lake Minnetonka Sailing School, which I think he said is one of the largest in the country, believe it or not. Yeah. We, only can, we can only, well, actually, we can sail year-round. Half the year it's on ice sailboats, and half the year it's on real sailboats. In those fringe times, you don't want to go overboard. So yes. I am a, I, I, I have had a, a sunfish and a laser, so I cannot say I'm proficient on either, and I have neither now. But anyways, I also love sailing, so I appreciate that. Seattle is a great place to go sailing and skateboarding. Um Anyway, so let's. Uh, I, I I quickly digress. Um, uh. Justin, um, you have so graciously um, volunteered to be told a joke, and what we thought today is, we could say, is this joke PCI compliant or is it not? Um, so I'm going to tell you a joke. All you have to do is say yes, that joke is compliant in the joke space, um, or that joke is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. It's got to get out of here. Here we go. I'll be transparent, Brent. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I ordered a giant duck at a fancy restaurant last night. The bill was huge. <laughs> That's well, it is PCI compliant. I think <laughs> you're ensuring transactional integrity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so I, I do. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about startups. Um, um, I'm part of the uh, entrepreneurial organization. I'm, I sit on the board here in Minneapolis. Um, and I, so I, I do hear and I value being able to talk about some of these issues with other entrepreneurs. So tell us a little bit about your journey in starting StrikeCraft, and I know under Greenmarm you said that you've started uh, multiple businesses in the past, but let's let's kind of dive into what that means to be a startup and and what yeah. does that look like for you? Yeah, happy to. You're right. Um, I, I've been interested in entrepreneurship for quite some time. Also, technology. Um, I did start out my career as an engineer, um, and one of the one of the things that I'm always looking for is really a problem to solve. A problem I think I could solve, a problem that is of a certain size and scale, and a problem that is apropos for a technology-type solution. Because not all problems are, of course, and uh, there are other types of businesses to build uh, for those types of problems. 
And the reason that I was really interested in StriteCraft is because the problem that I found is something that I experienced. And the problem was fundamentally getting trust with our customers to share data with us. It was a convoluted and confusing process and difficult um, to help them gain a trust, especially of a new vendor, um, to share that data. The, um, the reason that I was uh, excited about the size of the problem is that it seems to be affecting any B2B company that's sharing data, whether in a partnership relationship or a sales vendor relationship or you name it. There's this sensitivity between uh, this sharing of data and getting some external validation of your partner's uh, security practices so that you can feel comfortable sharing that data. And then the third thing was that I thought I had a really unique perspective on how to solve the problem because it's a very um, standards-driven certification process. Things like PCI DSS or SOC 2 are very common standards that are used. And I actually spent a long time in my technology career working with large standard systems in education technology. So I had a unique perspective, I felt like, on how to solve the problem. And that, of course, led to me uh, working with an incubator in Seattle, Washington to get a StrikeGraph spun out. And then, of course, we've been a typical VC-backed um, technology startup. Um, our most recent fundraise was an A round uh, about a year and a half ago. So explain to the listeners, what does that mean, A round uh, VC? T tell us a little bit about what that means as a founder to get different rounds of funding. Yeah. So one of the things that's true for StrikeGraph, and it, in some of my other businesses, this has not been true, is that a company like StrikeGraph can really benefit from capital to grow the value of the business. But for instance, I've had services business, like software development services businesses in the past, and those didn't necessarily require capital to get off the ground. So you can own more of the company. You don't need as broad a consortium to get a product out to marketplace. And, um, and so that when I say a VC backed, that's really, I was looking for a problem too that would attract investors to engage because I felt like I needed capital to build the product and bring it to marketplace and prove the value of it. I think there's an also an aspect of that of kind of building a consortium of people that care about the organizational success. And that's that's uh, our, the people that have invested in us, they're, they're certainly um, interested in the outcome of their investment and they're willing to lend time and energy and expertise uh, to helping us build the company. And so that's been very valuable. Now, um, the, the rounds uh, tend to run in a sequence and the size of the round is roughly correlated to the sequence. So a seed round is usually your first round that you might get and it could range between one and five million and there are wide outliers beyond that. Um, and that is meant to get an initial product out into the marketplace. Uh, the next round will generally be called an A round, a series A, the letter A. And those are going to range from $5 million in a total round size uh, up to 20 sometimes and bigger, uh, depending on what's happening. And in that round, the goal is to really prove product market fit um, and the ability to scale the business. And so you're generally going to want to be earning about a million dollars in revenue annually before a venture capital group might be interested in doing an A round. 
and the letters go up from there b c d e and they can go you know c rounds are between 25 million and 200 million dollars it's it varies wildly and you're generally driving towards either an ipo or a merger and acquisition liquidity moment yeah and so you mentioned a million dollars in revenue and and i guess for uh, a lot of entrepreneurs to get to that level, um, you know, they, they would go through a number of years uh, to to do that. Um, but at at a five million dollar investment, million dollars in revenue doesn't seem like could be that much, especially if you're selling a product that has a cost behind it. Yeah, uh, you have a SaaS product. Is that correct? I do. And so um, one thing to think about is the gross margin of delivery. Um, you know, we strive to the, the SaaS metric for gross margin on delivery is generally 70% gross margin or better. And so if you're under 70%, like my services businesses could have been a 50% gross margin or a 40% gross margin. Um, it's not necessarily a business that is going to attract venture capital investors or a broad swath of that community, right? Um, and the valuation on a company is different. If you're a services business, for example, I've heard like 1x annual revenue could be a typical valuation on a company. But where you're a product company, and the thing that an investor will think about a product company is that it's easier to scale the size of the business really big because you don't have to hire a lot of people. You know, there's not a ton of friction in going that route. And so, um, they'll give a, a 10x on average valuation to a business times revenue, uh, and, and it can be very generous. Now, that fluctuates wildly, as we have seen between last year and this year. So for example, some businesses last year uh, might have getting, early last year, might have been getting 40x valuation on their annual revenue. Um, I think now it's, fallen back to earth a fair bit. And that is why we were having this zeitgeist moment around technology startups in a way. And uh, and it's we're seeing anything from like a 4x to a 15x more commonly as a valuation. Yeah. Yeah. And if anybody is old enough to remember the 1999, 2000 years, they would know that there was a huge <laughs> overvaluation in tech and then it just came crumbling down on everyone at that time frame. Um, talk a little bit about how um, how you came up with your ideas and how uh, you don't you don't have to tell us the ideas, but tell us some of your process and why you chose the business you're in and and yeah. how you went about that. Yeah. So one thing is is that I experienced this problem myself. So as a chief technology officer at a prior startup, I was struggling to help our sales team get through the procurement process process efficiently and kind of share our security operations with them. And and this is where I started learning about standards like PCI DSS or SOC 2, and that we might go out and receive a certification from a, 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 an audit or testing firm against those particular standards. Um, it impacted our revenue in a, in a pretty, uh, in a strong way. And so, you know, this is the scenario. You've got a product, you're selling it in the market, you're gonna earn $100,000, let's say, for every adoption. And, but it's taking you two years to close a deal, like fully 24 months. 
And in that time, you've got to keep the product running and keep the sales motion going. It's incredibly costly before you ever get a dollar in the door. If I can take that two-year time frame and cut it in half or three quarters, that is a massive increase in the amount of revenue you can acquire. And that's what these certifications are doing for firms. They're taking that nine-month-long procurement review process and being like, oh, no, you already got an independent assessment on PCI DSS or SOC 2. We can trust you. And so we're going to go ahead and move this procurement process along quite quickly. So I knew the rewards were great um, for, for the solution. Um, I think that uh, I like the problem space because it's ethical in a way. Um, I, I do have an inclination to try and feel like I'm doing good. And I feel like this is actually a healthy thing. Honestly, like CTOs were resistant. No one wanted us to grade us on our security work, really, all that much. But I, it, once you get on the other side of one of these things, you're like, oh, I now have an understanding of what we need to do and that it is really successful for us. And it actually makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to, you know, I don't have to design every nuance of this thing. I can rely on these standards and these certifications to really compete effectively in the marketplace. And lo and behold, we implemented better security. And better security is better for all of us. We will all trust doing business in this marketplace more if we are able to trust sharing data. Um, so I like the ethics of the problem a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it, you know, as we talk about PCI and uh, PCI DSS compliance, SOC two uh, in the in the e-commerce space is just such a small part of that. Like that's just yeah. so, and it only applies to certain. Well, it applies to all merchants, but if if you're you have to be a above a certain level to actually do have a third party audit you. Um, yeah. it, it, it sounds like um, there is a lot more to it for more businesses than just that spear tip of e-commerce business. Tell us a little bit about what those certifications are or what those uh, uh, audit qualifications are that you're going through. Yeah. PCI DSS has been around for a little while. Um, and it was, you know, designed for credit card processing and especially as the proliferation of technology, even before the Internet, they wanted to make sure that vendors that were a part of the um, credit card processing transaction system uh, were, were helping keep that system safe broadly. You could almost think about a microcosm for the larger business issue, right, just within the credit card community. Um, my understanding is that I believe it's a... Uh, tier three, I might have them reversed, it might be the tier one, but the, the most um, rigorous tier that requires an external assessor for PCI DSS, it really gets triggered at about a million transactions a year. So if you're going to do a million transactions in a year, then you're going to need to get that independent assessment um, to participate in the credit card community, the, you know, the transaction space. Now, um, PCI DSS is kind of really specific about the transaction processes. There's some lightweight stuff in there for general security at the company, but that's not its main focus. And that's where other standards have kind of recent standards have pushed ahead beyond what PCI DSS does. And so like SOC 2 is very oftentimes another ask on top of PCI DSS, especially to do partner work. And it's a little more broad. It's going to ask for questions or security processes around HR and change management of software and 
uh, effective uh, developer operations in encryption of databases and things like that. And so um, it's going to kind of come at you with a broader set of expectations. And the way to think about all these things in my mind is SOC2 and PCI DSS, they're like a measuring stick. Your organization has a security operation that that, that organization feels confident in operating. You wanna measure it against common standards. And that is how I like to coach um, entrepreneurs in thinking about these standards is first design what works for you, do a gap analysis between you and accomplishing the audit, fill that gap when you're ready, and then you can go get the certification that you need. And I would imagine, uh, as you broaden it a little bit, you know, California has some strict data standards, and of course, all of Europe has very strict data standards. Yeah. So if we if we take ourselves out of just strictly um, e-commerce or, or transactions, there's a lot more to it than just what we see in terms of is my credit card saved somewhere. There's right. all there's all your personal data that is being played up or that has part of, of of a lot of the security, right? That's right. And I think on the backside of these processes, what founders can feel confident in is the maturity of the organization they're developing. So we we metric ourselves all the time as businesses, right? This is this is a great way to metric the process maturity inside an organization. Um, I can give an example of a of a, a, a client that I had many years ago who um, who would uh, who ran QuickBooks and he would put he would put the credit card number in the in the address field so then whomever is taking that phone call for that order they just have to copy and paste it into their into the credit card machine. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of questions that entrepreneurs or business owners should ask, and they should ask it at day one. Like, right. don't I mean? I think nowadays it's pretty, pretty evident that you don't store your credit cards. You don't store your customers' credit cards. A, you don't store them in unencrypted. <laughs> so, yes. so anybody has access to it, right? There nowadays there's a token, but I'm the, what I'm trying to do is illustrate that there's never a time where you shouldn't ask a question about something you feel is insensitive or, or is sensitive data. And mm -hmm. if you think, if I would argue that if you're thinking this could or couldn't be sensitive, assume it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredibly damaging to have a breach. Reputation wise, uh, you'll lose contracts over it. It's not, not an enjoyable thing. And so it, you do follow the data. We think, I think generally the reason that our marketplace has exploded and the desire for tools like we provide has proliferated so broadly is that sensitivity of the data. We have a, a health tech uh, customer that I was talking with, and they're not a massive business, let's say midsize, and they did an analysis on one of their databases, and uh, the analysis told them that the database itself was worth $70 million on the black market. So a lot of times we don't even we don't think like, oh, it's just one credit card. But the problem is if someone broke into Salesforce can extract every contact, they'd actually get all their credit cards out at the same time with just a simple report. And uh, that's that's what's super scary is the scale of the um, the data leakage that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that as we move along and, and the the credit, the I'm sorry, the database example and a developer example, if, if you're running something like 
uh, a system like WordPress or Magento or Shopware where, you're, where your, del- your ve- developer is downloading it on their local machine, running and developing and then pushing it back. If you don't scrub that database, it's, there is a potential that it, the merchant could be including credit card information by default that they may not even know about. And if yes. your agency you're working with is not necessarily in tune with what you're doing, if they're not a you know certified agency or whatever you want to call that, it's very possible that there is credit card data hanging around in this database that has everything that a, like you said, that somebody could sell that information on the black market. Yeah. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that operations process from... Uh, from the workflow standpoint as you as for any kind of business that has that takes that kind of data yeah certainly if you're on the business side where um, you're storing in a database this data let's say um, there are specifics in many of the standards about the segmentation of developer environments from QA environments from production environments and that data is segmented also across those different environments and one important thing to understand about these security operations is that you're going to have multiple people in your business that own certain aspects of this. So that particular responsibility will probably fall on your CTO and DevOps to make sure that we have a separation of environment so that we don't leak production data into a QA environment and then share that QA environment with another team. You know, you mentioned agencies. Uh, we didn't used to see a lot of like agency style customers for StrikeGraph because they don't store as much data. They have sensitive data, right? Intellectual property, um, customer info sometimes, but they didn't tend to store a lot of sensitive data. But more and more, we're seeing them come and ask for support from StrikeGraph to accomplish these outcomes. And they're getting SOC 2 certified. And they w- we won't have to do as much cybersecurity work with those organizations, but the, just the general business practices, like if a security incident happens, like the agency gets access to data they shouldn't, they have a methodology for alerting their customer and ensuring they're safe and they help keep their customer safe. And so these can be still be helpful standards, even as an agency participating in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think it is a GPRD or G- GPDR that's happened in Europe has been a really... Uh, it's been a driver to adopt a standard worldwide. Yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, GDPR is a, there's a couple things that are great ways to understand these standards. One is it's privacy focused. So it will be more about business policy than technology. You know, how, how do you plan to keep data private from a responsibility level? Like our CTO is required to keep the data private where our technology is concerned. So it can be broad like that. But GDPR is also a liability standard, right? Um, it's not often that we get asked to certify an organization to GDPR, but an organization will want to self-certify if they're participating with uh, personal information in the EU. Um, and then because they don't want to get sued. And so as long as they're self-assessing against the standard, if a lawsuit issue were to come up, they're hopefully um, kept away from a true liability or realized liability by the practices that they um, uh, embedded in their organization. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how um, any business should, should look at their security policy 
and maybe at a high level where they should start? Yeah. My recommendation, and this is the way our solution works for our customers as well, is actually, it sounds a little old school when we kick it off, but my recommendation is actually to start with a pretty simple risk assessment. One of the problems with security, and I, I've, in my role uh, directly as a security contributor, uh, we, have, we have this challenge is, what's the right scope? How much is the right security to do? Because if you're just basing it off of things that you see other people doing, or you're basing it off of existential fears that are out there that you've just generally heard about, um, you're going to overscope your security or underscope your security. You're not going to get it right. And so, but if you say, hey, we have personal information of European residents, there's a GDPR risk there. Like we can look at the risk and say, well, looks like we need some controls around privacy uh, because we have this personal information that we need to take care of. And so I like a really simple risk assessment. It could be like 20, 30 questions. And that's a great way to get that initial scope. Um, we like a, what's called a control-centric design to security operations. And I'm not sure if you've ever written a user story before, but it's a very similar type of scoping method. You're going to write two to three sentences about a security operation that you're going to do. For example, you may have a security control that says all new employees will sign an acceptable use policy. And that's the reason we like the control-centric design is that there are discrete practices that can be distributed to people responsible for them, and they're testable. So we can say, did we operate that control at this point? Now, one of the interesting things is that we push narrative policy a little bit to the background. So one of the things that will have to be done to deliver on the control of an acceptable use policy is someone has to write an acceptable use policy. And so uh, we, we try and drive away from the narrative approach to security design, focus on that control-centric design, which is a lot easier for all of us to grok and, and make sure is implemented. And then we can get into more of the narrative and nuance about how we implement those security practices. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So if, you know, like somebody's coming late in the game, what, what do you recommend? I guess start when you start, right? The, the yeah. adage about when is the right time to plant a tree 20 years ago? It's true. Yeah, because this is, a, this is an ongoing business practice. And so you need to think about this less like, oh, I'm driving at an audit, then I'm creating good habits in my organization. I want to test them on an annual basis. And so starting early with a small scope means it's easier to bolt on changes as the organization becomes more complex or new security practices are required. You're already bought into the value of the habit from a cultural perspective. And so we do recommend starting early because the worst situation to have and if one of your listeners is in this situation, please call us. We do help out. Is that, hey, you got the biggest contract you ever wanted. It's sitting out there. But in procurement, they said, oh, do you have a SOC 2 audit accomplished? And you're like, no. And we haven't even started yet. And gosh, I really want this contract. But I haven't gotten this process started at all. And so then you're on the back foot a little bit. It is solvable. There are ways. But certainly, it's better to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So if you had uh, one bit of advice that you could give an entrepreneur or any, any business person for the rest of this year, what would that be? 
Yeah, I think this year, especially just broadly in business, is there's a what I'm seeing is that there's a real return to the pragmatic approaches that I remember from bootstrapping businesses, you know, which I quite like. So I think both for yourself and your and your customers, and if you're an investor-backed business, those investors, they're looking for more stable companies that are better metric-focused and kind of balance outcomes at a business growth, plus, you know, uh, retention and resiliency uh, and profitability, possibly all at the same time. I like that modality. It appeals to me a little better than the, the go-go 2020 and 2021 <laughs> methodology. Uh, and and so I certainly think that's a part of it. I would say that um, if you're a B2B company and you're planning a lot of growth and you do share data with your customers, um, we're hearing that, you know, audits and certifications are critical to participating in the marketplace. And uh, certainly it's it is good to be prepared and understand what your customers will ask you for. This is my this is another great recommendation. Is, are you talking to customers that are going to ask for SOC 2 or ISO 27001 or PCI DSS? That is like, it's almost like product development work, product research work into what they need to adopt your product. Yeah, and I suppose as you move up in market, uh, your customers are more sophisticated. They're going to ask for more and more of those certifications um, as your business grows. Yeah, and there uh, are always new certifications being created. Uh, there's a brand new one for automotive suppliers called TSACs that we're rolling out this quarter, uh, for example. So this is, I'm sorry to say, this is going to metastasize in a way for all of us and get more complicated before we make it any simpler. <laughs> um, one last question. I heard you use the word grokking, and my friend wrote a book called Grokking Magento about 10 years ago. Explain what the word grokking <laughs> means for our, our lay people and, and yeah. uh, how you used it, it very casually in a conversation. I love Thanks. that. Thanks. I'm showing my age, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I think uh, the, the direct translation that I was used would be like, get it. Um, do you get it? And so grokking is understanding. Um, but you, I think also like it's a maybe referred to brain, you can tell me if I'm off base here, but a, a slightly deeper understanding, almost visceral understanding. Like um, if we take it back to skateboarding, which is probably where the term emerged, you know, I, I grok an ollie now because it's over, you know, weeks and weeks of practice, I finally got the muscle memory down a little. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, Justin, as I close out, I give everybody an opportunity to do a shameless plug about anything they'd like. What would you like to plug today? Sure. I just really like to, uh, well, I think that um, we'd like to plug StrikeGraph, of course. Um, we're, uh, we are a security compliance and certification solution. Uh, our customers earn uh, certifications or audits like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR compliance, et cetera, on our platform. Um, and we're just really excited about the success we've found customer by customer, the success they've found and value in the product and their maturity in the broader marketplace, and also the opportunity. We're continuing to build amazing innovations around automated testing and transparency that are gonna be very powerful. If you're interested in these uh, types of problems or the solutions we provide, the best place to go is strikegraph.com. Um, and right from the website, you can learn a lot as well as uh, book a demo with us at any time. And then if you're interested in, in myself, 
Uh, I'm getting old, Brent, and so the only social media I really participate on anymore is LinkedIn. But feel free to ping me on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to um, share either knowledge I've gained or experience with, with anyone that I can be helpful to. Yeah. That's great, and I'll make sure I'll put those, uh, I'll put those uh, contact information on the show notes. Uh, Justin Beals, the co-founder of StrikeGraph, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Brent. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Talk Commerce. Please rate this episode wherever you download your podcasts. We are actively looking for people to participate in the free joke project. Go to talk-commerce.com and sign up for your free spot on the free joke project. If you are a business, I will do a 30-second elevator pitch in the spot to help promote your business. That's talk-commerce.com.